0: Haru Anoda was a Japanese imperial intelligence officer in uh, World War II. He was uh, attached to a commando unit, and they were stationed in the Philippine Islands. Now, the command, or rather the, uh, the orders he, was, uh, he and his, his unit received, were they were to do everything possible to prevent the, the allied invasion in the Philippines. And if the allies were to invade, by no means... Uh, uh, necessary were they, were, were they ever to, to surrender to the enemy. Now, Haru took that to heart because in February, the Allies invaded the Philippines and captured the islands. And all of them had either been killed or captured, except for Haru and two other people, and they fled into the jungle and hid. Months passed. Eventually, Haru was by himself. More months passed. Nine months later, Haru found a um, leaflet in the bottom of the jungle floor uh, that had been dropped from a Japanese airplane that were telling all survivors that the war was over. Now, nine months by himself, I'm sure there was some sort of psychological damage of just being by himself in the jungle and that fear. So he decided not to believe it. He thought it was a ruse from the Americans. So months he hid in the jungles. Months by himself, months went by. Eventually, rumors surfaced. There were villagers on the Philippines that saw this man they thought to be Haru, so uh, a rumor spread. Eventually, this rumor got back to Japan, and a Japanese adventurer, a traveler, went to the islands to search for Haru. It only took him four days, but he found Haru. The year was 1976. 1976. Haru had been hiding in the jungles by himself for 30-plus years. Now, in that moment, he, he spoke to the traveler. This traveler had clothes and attire that he had never seen before, but he spoke to him, but he decided, yet still, the war had not ended. It wasn't until that his old commanding officer, and at this point he was very old, came to the Philippine Islands to demand his surrender. It was only then that Haru reluctantly Marched out of the jungle and let go of his rifle. 30 plus years. I I love World War II stuff. I mean, that is such a fascinating story to me. It's an incredibly sad one, though. Because for 30 years hiding in the jungle, that poor man needlessly lived in fear, fighting a war that wasn't his to fight. It's such a unique story, right? But I really do think that oftentimes we live like Carew. Sometimes we can get so immersed in whatever our own personal circumstances are, we fail to see the bigger picture. We fail to see truth. You know, to be fair, we we have lots of things in this life that are dangerous. A lot of trials and tribulations. A lot of snares, right? We have attacks from the evil one. We have the hardships that we experience living in a broken world. We have our failures of the flesh. We have real things that face us. I mean, my goodness, even this past week, some of us have experienced so much despair from our accuser. We've been tempted to despair. We have had so much struggles in our hearts lately. We're surrounded by uncertain circumstances, politically, financially, otherwise. Some of us lately have just felt completely overwhelmed that at any moment we're going to drown in these uncertain circumstances and our an enemies going to come out and just destroy us. Israel often lived that way, particularly in the exile period when Psalm 114 was written. Immersed in their circumstances, they failed to see the bigger picture. And oftentimes we're like that. But that is why, brothers and sisters, that God and his grace gives us Psalm 114. This is a message of hopes of uh, Psalm 114. For those of us who are weary, and for those of us who are just simply beaten down, for those of us who are hiding in whatever our jungles are, God gives us Psalm 114 to come out of hiding. He gives us Psalm 114 so that we might finally direct our eyes to him and see truth. That me might be reminded of the greatness of God, the greatness of who he is, the greatness of what he has done, and the greatness of what he continues to do for people like you and me. When we set our eyes on the Lord and remember his greatness, brothers and sisters, it's then and only then we'll be reminded that the war is indeed over. And that you and I will be enabled to be a people of hope, even in circumstances that seem hopeless. C.S. Lewis said that as the church, we often need to be reminded of what we already know instead of learning something new. In this passage, God reminds us of three things that we might be encouraged that would enable us to live as a people of hope by reminding us of his greatness. The first thing that we see is in verse 1 and 2 when we are reminded to remember the greatness of our redemption. In times of corporate struggle or seasons of oppression or personal failure, the poets and the prophets of Israel would point the people of Israel back to the greatest act of deliverance in the Old Testament, the Exodus account, which we've been studying lately and and Sunday morning going through the book of Exodus. The poets and the prophets would remind Israel of this great act of God's deliverance, the Exodus account. And the reason they did that is because the Exodus account itself was the foundation of Israel's being. It was the very foundation of their identity as the people of God. It was the basis of their hope. And therefore, to live as a people of hope, they were called time and time again to remember the greatness of their redemption. And church family, we are called to do the exact same thing in verses 1 and 2. When you are tempted to despair, when you feel like the world is closing in on you, when you feel like you're beyond hope, Remember the greatness of your redemption in Jesus Christ. Now, let's just take a note of what the early people, the early Israelites, what they remembered about their redemption. First off, we see in verse 1 that they were to remember and dwell on the nature of their redemption. In verse 1, we see that prior to the parting of the Red Sea, the people of Israel had an identity. Prior to them being delivered from the Red Sea, they had an identity, and we are uh, told that they were captives in Egypt. This is what we're reminded of in verse 1, but then the poet adds that phrase, uh, they were captives in Egypt. They were, they were in Egypt, a people of a foreign tongue, a foreign language, the writer says. Now, that's very important, because when he says that, he's not taking a slight at foreigners or people that speak differently than us. This was a poetic way of summarizing and highlighting the fact that Israel was homeless, that Israel was powerless, that Israel was alienated. Remember, they were captives in a foreign land. They were being oppressed by a people group that did not care or have their best interests at heart. Israel was homeless, they were powerless, and they were alienated. To put it in another way, they were completely incapable of delivering themselves from bondage. They were hopeless. However, as we've been reading about Nexodus, Exodus, and certainly as what we'll see next week and the week after, it's precisely in those places of powerlessness that God shows up for his people. It's precisely in their place of powerlessness that God in his grace and his faithfulness to the promises he made, Father Abraham, that God breaks into this world to deliver Israel. And it's by reminding us of how powerless they were, this poet, shows us a little bit of something about the nature of redemption. And just in layman's terms, the nature of the redemption is is Israel didn't have anything to do with it. (laughs) Because they were powerless. Just think about these verses. Uh, Israel wasn't delivered because they got better circumstances. They were delivered in spite of their very bad circumstances. Israel did not save themselves. They were delivered by him who was on the outside of themselves. And so Israel, they would dwell on that in order to remind themselves that even when it seems hopeless, they could be a people that rejoiced because Yahweh was a God of the hopeless. They remembered the nature of their redemption. Secondly, they also remembered the purpose of their redemption. We see that in verse 2. If you look at verse 2, listen, God's purpose in redeeming them, rescuing them, it, it wasn't for... Economic or political liberty. I mean, they would eventually become a nation, but that wasn't the purpose of God's deliverance. What was the purpose of God's deliverance? It was something far greater than that. The purpose of their deliverance was so that God might transform them. Friends, this is amazing. If you just look at verse two, we see that the emphasis was not on where they came from in Egypt, it's where God was leading them. The emphasis was not on who they were. The emphasis is on who they are now. God, in his grace, didn't just deliver them from an evil power, which, of course, he did. God also transformed them into something new. God made them his sanctuary. I wish I, was, I had more time and I was smart enough just to, just to completely describe what that word meant, sanctuary. But, friends, this is essentially what it means. It means that God... In his grace and in his mercy chose Israel, people that didn't deserve it or weren't worthy of it, but chose them to be his one and only people, the people whom he would dwell with. He would send his Shekinah glory to dwell in their presence in the tabernacle, later in the temple. But essentially that vindicated them as being the one true people of God of the one true God. He chose them and said, I'm going to dwell with you, Israel. You're going to be my sanctuary. You're going to be my kingdom of priests. Get this, the very people through whom I'm going to bless the rest of the world, including, eventually, Egypt. How how amazing would that have been for Israel to hear? A people group who for 400 years were slaves. Who were told they were nothing but worm dirt and subhuman pieces of trash. But God delivers them and God transforms them apart from their own doing. And all of a sudden, they're the most important people on the planet. (laughs) <laughs> and God did that. God was going to use them to bless the world. And so, uh, brothers, whatever the source, whatever the severity of their present pain, of their present fear about remembering what God had done in the past, it produced within them a faith in the present and a hope for the future. And that's the same thing that's true of us, church. That whenever we remember the greatness of our redemption... We're able to live as a people of hope. How much more so for us on this side of the cross, right? Because this whole model of redemption that we see in Exodus, that we've been studying about the past couple of weeks, that we'll be studying about in the next couple of weeks. This whole model of redemption is just that. It's a model that we've seen in Exodus. It's pointing us to a greater Exodus. It's pointing us to the greater redemption. For example, read Isaiah 43, verses 16 through 19 later this afternoon. In that passage, God encourages exiled Israel by reminding them of how he had delivered the people of Israel way back when. But then he goes on to say, God does. I'm glad that encourages you. But in this moment, I just want you to forget about it because you haven't seen nothing yet, Israel. You haven't even begun to understand what I'm about to do. I'm gonna bring about another Exodus, but it's gonna be better and greater than last time there's a new exodus coming this new greater redemption this greater salvation and this whole idea of this new exodus it gets retold over and over again through the prophets particularly Isaiah but then we get to the new testament and we see Jesus Christ and after we see what Christ has done well church we get our marching orders Because of what Jesus Christ has done, we see what we must do whenever we are in the jungles of uncertainty or in our deepest hours of our despair. We are to retell each other, church, the all-important news that the new exodus has come and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's come, church. Just, Just think about our redemption in Christ. Just think about the story. You and I were once captives in the foreign land. Our slave master was not Pharaoh. It was the greater slave master. It was sin. And because of that, you and I were spiritually isolated. We were spiritually alienated. We were spiritually powerless and homeless. But God, when the time was right, sent his son into the world, the greater Moses, Jesus Christ, to deliver us to do exactly what you and I could not do ourselves. At the cross, Jesus plunged himself into the waters of his father's judgment and wrath and sank to the bottom of the tomb. But on the third day, Jesus Christ rose again. He brought life out of death, salvation out of judgment. Everything we've been studying up to this point has been pointing to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the day that he would deliver us from the only captor that could ever truly hold us and the only storm and sea that could ever truly destroy us. Church, we were hopeless but the great news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is the hope of the hopeless we need to remind ourselves of the greatness of our redemption church this is how we apply this at least this is how I'm going to apply it and hope you would apply it with me as a fallen human being I am predisposed of being afraid and I know the tactics of my enemy the enemy who also often tempts me to be afraid of my Savior and my Redeemer. Have you ever experienced that when you struggle with a sin or remember past sins? You hear those notes of despair, the evil one whispers into your ear, how could you have possibly done that? How could you have done that again, Barton? How could you possibly think that a good and righteous and holy God could ever love a scumbag like you? Have you ever thought that way before, felt those doubts, thought those doubts? Church, it's in those times you need to remind yourself of the greatness of your redemption in Jesus Christ. The great news that the war is over. Death is dead and Christ has won. And if you have faith in him, you're more than a conqueror too, church. Retell it to each other. Retell it to the person sitting next to you. The great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we sin, repent, absolutely. But don't do it in fear. Do it in the great hope of Romans 8, 1, that there is now no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. In Jesus Christ, the chains have fallen off. Our hearts have been set free. When Jesus rose from the dead, when you have faith in him, one day so will you. Where there will be no more sin in your heart, not even a temptation to sin. And when you behold your Savior face to face, you'll be instantaneously transformed in his glory. Where you'll spend eternity with him forever and ever. Don't listen to your tempter or your accuser. Listen to your Savior, church. How do we live as a people of hope in a world that sometimes feels hopeless? Remember the greatness of your redemption. Secondly, we're to remember the greatness of God and his power. We see this in verses 3 through 6. Again, he uses such illustrious language here, I can't do justice to all of it, but from some of the or images that we see, I think the first thing that we're to be reminded of in verses 3 and 4 is that there are some very real forces and very real dangers that face us in this life. The Bible's real with those things. If you look at verse 3, we see that imagery of the water in the Red Sea and the Jordan River. Now, not in every case, but in most cases, including this instance, water usually refers to... All of the chaotic and evil forces of this world that stand opposed to God, forces that are greater than us. By the way, sin and principalities, the evil one, injustices—all those type of things that are greater than us. And we see that in the sea. Then we see the word "mountain" in verse four. Now, there's, that could refer to many different things, but I think the easiest read to view "mountain" is simply an immovable object—things <laughs> that are certainly beyond our control, things like death, disease, disaster. Things that are such, have greater power than us. The Bible is real with those things. We need to be real with those things. But the Bible is also real about this. Whatever is greater than you it is never greater than our God. Our God holds all power and authority in the palm of his hand, church. And the poet reminds us of this. We see this. In the Exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea or the crossing of the River Jordan, particularly at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see that everything that is greater than you, everything that's greater than me, all of those things are pushed back at the mere sight of the Lord Jesus Christ. His voice splits the oceans. His presence causes the mountains to shake. There's nothing greater than our Lord. Then, of course, we get to Revelation and we're reminded of every single Sunday after our sermon passage like we just read in Isaiah. That whatever stands opposed to God in this world one day will crumble and be remembered no more. What are we reminded of? Every single Sunday, the grass withers and the flower fades. Heaven and earth might pass away, but what stands forever? God's word and his promises to you and me. That stands forever. There's nothing greater than our God church. He is all-powerful. And the poet's point then is to invite us back into a God consciousness. Sometimes we can get so stuck in our circumstances we forget to have a God consciousness, to live in light of true reality. What is a God consciousness? It's when we as the people of God start viewing our circumstances in light of how awesome and great and powerful God is. I think more than ever we need to To cultivate a God consciousness. I mean, just think about the culture in which we live. We have clickbait articles all over the place. I read them all the time. I know I shouldn't. It gives me anxiety. But they're all over the place. We have 24-7 hour cable news networks that we spend way too much time watching. All of those things, all they do is disciple us into believing that the world is falling apart, that the sky is falling But it also convinces us, too, that the only thing that we really need to fix that is a new politician or a new policy or maybe a little can-do attitude from ourselves because maybe we're the ones to fix it. And we actually sometimes believe that. (laughs) And, And we wonder why we have so much anxiety and pressure and fear and sometimes anger. A prayer that I have for myself and a prayer that I have for you is that God in his mercy would deliver us from the news. Because on the one hand, the news and Twitter and all that other stuff, it completely undersells the the, the true danger this world is in. It has a very narrow focus of what the danger is in this world. We know what the true danger is in this world. But on the other hand, it completely fails each and every way, every time of pointing people to where true hope and help is found. The world says, look to yourself or look to others to find help and hope. But the Bible says, why in the world would you do that? Why would you look to him who has overcome the world? Friends, we don't need more Twitter. We don't need more CNN or Fox News or whatever it is that we watch. What we need is the word of God. You remember last week that Pastor George, he says that the Lord's Supper, it's a means of grace which God gives us, right, that we might... Fixate our hearts and our minds on truth that we might uh, believe more deeply in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a means of grace. God and His grace gives us the Bible for the exact same thing. It's His spoken word, it's a word of life. And when we deal seriously with God's word, when we disciple ourselves in God's word, when we disciple each other in God's word, when we abide in God's word, you know what happens? You and I develop a defiant faith. Not a pie-in-the-sky faith, not a head-in-the-sand type of faith, but a defiant one. A courageous one. If you don't believe me, look at verses 5 and 6. I mean, 5 and (laughs) 6, I think they're actually kind of hilarious. If you look at verses 5 and 6, they're rhetorical questions. Just read those for a second. Do you know what verses 5 and 6 demonstrate for us? It demonstrates for us that the person that has a word-informed heart and a word-informed mind... Becomes one of the world's greatest trash talkers. That's what verse five and six say to me. I mean, look at it. What ails you, O.C.? Do you remember what C means? It means some evil, demonic stuff. He goes, What ails you, O.C.? What causes you to flee? Oh, big and bad mountains, what causes you to frolic away like a little lamb? (laughs) I mean, this poet, he's an ancient trash talker. I mean, think through some of the greatest trash talkers of all time. I mean, most of them are sports figures. Some of our our favorites, Larry Legend, Larry Bird, or Charles Barkley, one of my all-time favorites. One of the greatest, the greatest trash talker of all time in my mind is Muhammad Ali, right? And one of the greatest. That guy just exuded self-confidence, right? Facing Joe Frazier, 6'2", 250 pounds of muscle, Muhammad Ali says, if you ever dream about beating me, you better wake up and apologize. One of the coolest things that you could ever say in that situation. I don't have that type of confidence. I wish I did. But friends, here's the point. That doesn't even hold a candle to the trash talk that this original poet threw down here. The greatest of all time, Muhammad Ali would not dare provoke the powers this poet does here. But the poet does in church we can too in Jesus Christ. In fact, you and I are commanded to. Do you know that? We can mock the devil. We can turn our nose up at death. We can stare down the evil and the injustice in this world. And why can we do that? We can do that because unlike those great trash talkers of this world, our boast is not in ourself, but our boast is in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has overcome the world. The one who rose on the third day and ascended to his father and sat down in power and authority at his right hand. The one who is in control of all things, rules and reigns, even has his enemies as his footstools. And if you have faith in him, this is what that means. It means that whatever happens in this world or whatever circumstances you face, you never have to be afraid because your Redeemer is sitting on the throne and in his grace, he's taking you there with him. Church, do you have this confidence? It's not a confidence in yourself. It's not a braggy confidence. But do you have this courage in the Lord? Paul says this, this is the type of courage that's available to each of us in Jesus Christ. In, in Romans 8, what does he say? He gives us another rhetorical question, just like this poet here. He says, what shall ever separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation Shall persecution, shall danger, shall famine, nakedness, sword, death, shall those things separate you from the Lord Jesus Christ? Here's the same tone of the poet of chapter 114. Now on a real level, those things obviously are greater than we are. You bring a sword, I'm going down. Death comes to us all in this life. What Paul is saying here for the Christian who has a word-informed mind and a gospel-saturated heart and therefore a defiant faith, this is how you can answer that question. I don't care what faces me. Because if Christ is for me, who has overcome the world, who could possibly be against me? That courage is available to you, church. How do we live by faith in this world? How do we be a people of hope even in situations that are otherwise hopeless? Remember the greatness of your redemption. The war is over. Christ is won. Remember the greatness of God's power. If he's on your side, it doesn't matter who's against you. And thirdly and lastly, remember the greatness of God's provision for you. In the Sermon on the Mount Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says to his disciples, his people, his high priests whom he's redeemed, do not be anxious about your life. Don't be worried about what you might drink or what you might eat. Don't be worried about what happens to your body. Do not be worried about your life, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That is to say, be God conscious. Keep your eyes fixated upon him. Live in this God consciousness, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what does he say? These things will be added to you. That was said by Jesus 2,000 years ago, and I think it's ever as relevant today as it was then. Right? Because without diminishing those of us who need the common grace of therapy and, and things of that nature, because we deal with anxiety on, on a deeper level, all of us deal with anxiety in some level. And what's worse, we live in a culture, right, that inflames our fears and our anxieties. H.B. Charles, one of my favorite pastors, I love how he described his anxiety. He said, it often feels like that there's this internal strangulation that he's experiencing from the harsh hands from the ruthless hands of his uncertain circumstances and that's how I feel sometimes whatever your uncertain circumstances are maybe it's a bad note from the doctor maybe it was a bad review from your boss I don't know what your uncertain circumstance is but oftentimes when we worry about those things it feels like it's just strangling the life out of us doesn't it where you wake up with heart palpitations and a sweaty brow you just can't go to bed it steals your peace now, on a spiritual level, for, for most of us, what that means is, is that we simply have a divided heart. We, we're being driven by fear of those things on one day. The next day, we might have hope and be, you know, just hopeful. But the next day, then, too, we're, we're driven by fear again. It's a divided heart. All of us experience that. And it can be so exhausting, right, that we just simply resign ourselves to the fate. This is how it's going to be. Limiting ourselves from the divine joy of the Lord and his peace which surpasses all human comprehension. All of us experience that. But Jesus says in Matthew 6, do not fear church. Be anxious for nothing, second presbyterian church. Do not worry about your life. Can you imagine experiencing that? Living in that reality? How in the world is that possible? Well, we've been looking at it in this chapter 114. It's when we have that God consciousness. When we view our circumstances in light of how great God is rather than the other way around. We develop this God consciousness as we saw by having a word-informed heart and mind. And when we do that, when we have this God consciousness, we grow in trust of two things. First off, we grow in our trust of God, our provider. You know, for me, I'm just going to speak on myself. One of the reasons I have anxiety, I have self-diagnosis, which I'm not sure is a good thing. But I know that one of the reasons that I have anxiety sometimes is because I'm spending too much time looking for the provision in my life. Rather than doing what I should have done in the first place, just setting my eyes on my provider. That gives anxiety, right? Because we know in scripture, God will provide every need that we need, the real needs that we have in this life. God will provide those. But he doesn't usually do it on Barton Kimbrough's time. I can tell you that much. He'll do it in his time, but not my time. And so when I'm just worrying about over this provision, I'm preventing myself from experiencing the greatest provision of all, God himself. He has provided his presence to us, church. This is what he says in verse seven. God, our refuge and our strength has already given us the all satisfying, all comforting presence of himself. That's what this says here, that God has, has given us his presence and we see this in verse 7 when, when for the first time the poet lists the name of God. Verse 7. First he says Lord but then, but then he specifies he talks about the covenant name of the Lord and what does he say? The God of Jacob. I got to tell you God of Jacob. I'm so glad he said the God of Jacob. I'm glad he didn't say the God of I don't know Paul. John Calvin, Tim Keller, whoever is your spiritual hero. I'm glad he didn't say that guy. I'm glad he said the God of Jacob. Why? Because Jacob struggled with trusting God all of his life. Yet still, God met Jacob when he was unworthy and undeserving in the midst of his failure. And God grabbed that coward Jacob and brought him into his warm embrace and transformed him into mighty Israel what that tells us is, is that God in his grace enters unilateral covenants with people like us. Little Jacobs who struggle in our faith. And what this covenant means is everything is completely contingent upon him. So even when we falter, even when we fail, even when we don't trust the Lord, he has committed himself to us, church. And he's even promised to execute his power and his authority on our behalf. The God of power and might. Has obligated himself to you and to me. And if that's true, and it is, then Israel would trust their, his provision. Israel, Israel gathered all of these facts up, and it was a great reminder of the trustworthiness of the God of Jacob and his provision. And that was all they needed to live by faith, being the kingdom of priests they were called to be in this life, and to live as a people of hope, even when situations seemed hopeless. They remembered God and His greatness, God's provision, and they trusted that God loved them and is with them. Church, do you believe that? Do you believe the God who brought all things out of nothing by the power of His word alone? Do you believe the God who transformed slaves into His royal priesthood? Do you believe the God who brought life out of death? The God whose mere presence caused mountains to tremble and seas to part. Do you believe the very God who holds all power and authority in the palm of his hand? Do you believe he loves you? Do you believe he cares for you? That's what God of Jacob means. He has committed himself to you. And to be honest, church, we have all the more reason to believe that and to rest in that than this poet did because of God's presence who's, what shook the mountains and parted the seas, he has come close to you. And he came infinitely more close than he did at Mount Sinai. And he's come infinitely more close than he has at the Red Sea or at the crossing of the River Jordan or even in the tabernacle and the temple. He's come more close than that to you. He became man. He took on your humanity. And he's come close to you. But even after Jesus ascended to be with his father, he has sent his spirit to dwell inside of you. He has taken up residence in you, church. He's made you his sanctuary. God has. And because of that, every hour of every day, every moment of every day, including right now, God is with you. Closer than he ever was with Moses. He loves you. And when Jesus tells us as a church to, get, to stop worrying, stop fearing, and just simply get busy doing my kingdom work, seeking after the kingdom of God and my righteousness, to get busy being a, a city or a, rather a nation of priests interceding on behalf of the city and the world. Get busy making disciples of all nations, telling other captives as a former captor the great news of the deliverer of Jesus Christ. Don't fear why you do those things. And what's the basis of that? Jesus gives us the eternal promise that he will be with us to the end of the age. And because of that church, we can trust he'll provide for us. This is what Paul says in Romans 8. If God who did not spare his one and only son, his precious son, his beloved son, will he not also graciously give you all things? Again, that's a rhetorical question. Right, because if Jesus met our spiritual necessities. If God met our spiritual necessities with the water and the blood that flowed from the greater rock, Jesus Christ, well, of course he's going to meet our every need in this life. Friends, Jesus Christ is our great high priest, loves and tends to you perfectly. Jesus is our great prophet. The the true prophet speaks truth to you. And will never lead you astray. And as our king, Jesus Christ, has promised to guard and defend us as he leads us home. We have nothing to worry about, church. How do we live by faith in this life? How do we be a people of hope? Remember the greatness of your redemption. The war is over. Remember the greatness of who God is. If he is for you, who could possibly be against you? Remember the greatness of his provision for you and the Lord. Jesus Christ, in whom you are more than a conqueror. There's a famous story about John Chrysostom. He's a church father in the fifth century, and he faced uh, great persecution from the emperor of the Roman, or rather the Byzantine Empire. It was a time in church history where it was very difficult being the church and following Jesus Christ. But still, he did it, and the church was growing. And so the emperor snatched him up, brought him before his throne, and threatened John Chrysostom with banishment. He said, if you don't stop preaching the gospel, or to put it another way, if you don't stop spreading the good news of Jesus Christ and simply go back into whatever jungle you came from, I'm going to kick you out of the kingdom. Now, back then, that was a big deal. That meant certain death. This is how John responded. He says, you cannot banish me. Speaking to the emperor of the Byzantine Empire. You cannot banish me, for this world is my father's house. The emperor says, but I will kill you. John responded, no, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. Then I'll take away every single one of your treasures. John responded, no, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. Fine, I'll drive you away from your friends and away from your family, and you'll have no one left. You'll be alone. John said, no, you cannot. For I have a friend in heaven from whom you can never separate me. I defy you, for there's nothing that you can do to harm me. How about that? A fifth century trash talker. Friends, how do we live as a people of hope, even in situations that otherwise seem hopeless? Remember the greatness of your redemption in Christ. Remember the greatness of who God is. remember he's pledged himself to you and remember of his great provision for you in Christ brothers and sisters Christ has won the war is over and if he is for you who could possibly be against you let us pray together Heavenly Father we are so grateful for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ We know that we're undeserving, unworthy, yet still in your love you reached down into our misery, into our darkness, into our despair. And you plucked us out of the kingdom of darkness and you brought us into your kingdom of light. You've given us the great dignity and the great purpose of being your kingdom of priests to spread the good news of Christ. And you've given us every reason to never be afraid as we do it. Oh dear Lord, would you please cause us to believe more deeply in the promises of the gospel and that we live by faith and be a people of hope as we live for you in this world. We pray in Christ's name, amen.